This is the Mahabharata Podcast, Episode 92, The Anugita and the Wayward Stallion. Last time, we learned that while getting promoted from a lower caste to Brahmin is next to impossible, a rishi can simply say the word and a king is transformed into a Brahmin. In the last story of the episode, we learned that even the gods are subordinate to the rishis. Coming from a Western perspective, where we first learned of the Greek gods and the Judeo-Christian god, we tend to assume that the Hindu devas, like Indra, are approximately the same as the Greek pantheon. From the Greek myths I have read, no one tells Zeus what to do. He's king of the gods. This is definitely not the case when it comes to the king of the devas, Indra. According to the cosmology of this epic, Indra and the devas are still a few steps down the pantheistic ladder. Just as earthly Brahmins often work for kings, but are ultimately superior to their employers, so the heavenly rishis can intimidate the gods if they so choose. At the very top of the heavenly org chart are the Hindu trinity, Shiva, Brahma, and Vishnu. I won't even attempt to say which one of these is boss. Since the days of the Mahabharata, the worship of the old pantheon has declined into obscurity. Aside from their role in the archaic Vedic rituals, the old gods Indra, Vayu, and Surya have slipped into obscurity, while a new host of deities, such as Ganesha, Lakshmi, Durga, and Hanuman, have taken their place as popular objects of devotion. I also find it curious that along with Indra's decline in popularity, Hinduism also lost its interest in Soma. Remarkably, even the recipe for making Soma has been lost, and its ingredients are the subject of much controversy. Nowadays, instead of worshipping the Soma-drinking Indra, we have the cannabis-smoking Shiva. Perhaps that is a clue as to the main ingredient for Soma. But I'm digressing from the subject at hand. The main thing that happened last time was the death of Bhishma. I must confess that it came as somewhat of a relief to see him go, because the final teachings were not easy to handle. I guess because the old guy had been dying for such a long time, his actual passing went by pretty quickly. When it was over, Yudhishthira again started feeling sorry for himself and wanted to resign to the forest. But this time Dhritarashtra put him in his place. After all, he's the one who has something to be sorry for. So it took another storytelling session to snap him out of it. We heard the story of how Maruta faced down Indra and left behind piles of gold from his ancient sacrifice. Now that Yudhishthira was back on the throne and busy preparing his grand sacrifice, Krishna and Arjun left for a leisure tour. You would have expected these two warriors to have... Prior to the war, you would have expected these two warriors to have gone hunting, but maybe something changed about them and all the violence that they'd witnessed, because instead, it sounds like they just went on a pleasure cruise, and finally arrived at Indraprastha, the Pandava's former capital, and there they hung out for a while. I actually get the impression that Arjun was made king of Indraprastha, and he and Krishna set up court there. But after hanging out there a while, Krishna began to think of his family and friends back at Dwarka, so he requested leave to depart for home. As Arjun escorted his friend to his chariot, he said, My friend, son of Devaki, I truly did not know your greatness until you revealed yourself before the battle. But you know what? I've pretty much forgotten what you told me back then. Krishna gave Arjun a goodbye hug and said, I told you the deepest secrets of the universe. I can't believe you forgot. Weren't you paying attention? Because I'm not sure I can recall what all I told you back then. But I did once meet a Brahmin who told me of an encounter Kashyapa had with a man who was on the very threshold of moksha, or emancipation. This fellow, who was also a Brahmin, said this, Nowhere will you find the highest happiness, 
Nowhere shall you find eternal life. Existence is all about falling from grace and then slowly picking yourself up out of misery. Driven as I was by lust and greed, I have repeatedly undergone death and rebirth. I have had many mothers and fathers. I have been fantastically wealthy, and I have had all my wealth taken from me. I have been insulted and persecuted, humiliated and tortured. I have suffered old age and illness countless times. But then, finally, in the depths of my despair, I gave up my desire for the world's joys and sorrows. When I finally understood this path, I dedicated myself to it. Now I have finally attained tranquility in my heart and soul, and I will not have to be reborn in this world again. When I die, I shall progress to Satyaloka, and from there I shall be absorbed into the bliss of Brahma. Krishna summed up the story by explaining that by performing good deeds and sacrifices, one can attain to a period of time in heaven. But even if one stays in paradise for a million years, eventually it wears off and the soul must move on to rebirth. It is only through the path of non-action, or nivritti, that one can bypass heaven and the gods and attain permanent liberation. This dialogue is called the Anugita and is considered a sort of supplement to the Bhagavad Gita. Following this discourse, the friends returned to Hastinapur together so Krishna could take his leave from the king. Returning to the capital, Krishna was honored by all of the Kuru clan and given leave to depart. Escorted to the borders by the Pandavas themselves, Krishna and Satyaki finally headed out for Dwarka. If you're familiar with Indian geography, there's quite a desert between Hastinapur and Dwarka, and as the pair of Rishnis crossed the desert, they came across an ascetic Rishi named Utanka. Utanka knew well who Krishna was and knew of his mission, but he asked the news of the war. Knowing Krishna's omnipotence, he rather assumed that he must have solved all the problems with the Kurus and now is headed back for home, everyone happily back in the right place. He asked, Have you succeeded in reuniting the cousins? I imagine that they are all playing together in perfect harmony. Krishna replied, Well, I really tried hard to bring them to an understanding, but it didn't work out. So now they all killed each other. Destiny is unavoidable. Utanka got really mad at this news. He said, I know perfectly well that you could have easily brought about a peaceful settlement. Getting even more angry as he went along, he said, I have half a mind to curse you where you stand. Krishna said, Now hold on there, give me a minute to explain, and then you decide whether you want to try cursing me. First of all, no man is able to put me down having just some ascetic merit, and I don't want to see you get yourself hurt. You have worked hard since your infancy to get your current status, so don't blow it all on this one mistake. Krishna then schooled the sage on his real nature. After being lectured on this for some time, Utanka calmed down and said, You are indeed the creator of the universe, and my heart is no longer inclined to curse you. But could you do me a favor? I'd like to see you in your divine form. Krishna obliged him, and pulling up his skirt, he showed Utanka what Arjun had seen before the great battle. Utanka was suitably impressed by this display, and Krishna also offered him a boon. At first, the sage protested that to be in his presence was blessing enough. But Krishna insisted. So Utanka asked for something practical. Considering that they were out in the desert, he asked that any time he should think of it, he would find water to drink. Krishna cheerfully granted Utanka his wish, and then the two went their separate ways. Utanka continued his wanderings in the desert until he started feeling thirsty. It was a good time to try out his new gift, so the sage thought of Krishna. Wondering when the water was going to appear, he suddenly ran across a naked tribal hunter, covered only in mud and dirt. 
The Chandala whipped out his schlong and began urinating copious streams of water. Grinning lasciviously, the fellow said, Thirsty, my friend? Drink up. But Utanka, who was committed to the ultra-pure Brahmacharya vow, was horrified and disgusted. He adamantly refused to accept water in this form. The creepy fellow kept pissing and grinning and offering a drink, but Utanka, thirsty as he was, just got angry. As he considered hurling a curse at the man, the naked hunter vanished. Being familiar with Krishna and his tricky ways, he began to suspect that Vasudev was somehow behind this. It doesn't say how he managed it, but somehow Utanka managed to catch up with Krishna, who was still journeying on his way back to Dwarka. When he found him, he castigated Krishna. He said, It wasn't very nice of you to give me water in the form of a chandala's urine, my lord. Krishna said, The water was offered to you in the way that was most appropriate for that moment. It's too bad you missed your chance, because I had made special arrangements. I wanted to arrange a drink of the Amrit just for you, so you might have immortality. I had to ask Indra to send this to you, but he wouldn't do it. I had to ask him a second time, and only with my urging did he finally give way. But he insisted on presenting it to you in that way. He said that if you accepted it in that manner, then you would have the rarest gift of immortality. You really screwed up this time, but in future, you shall have your water the way you prefer it, but it will just be normal rainwater. This little story appears to be a kind of creation myth, because it ends saying that from that time on, the rain clouds in the desert are called Utanka clouds. The rest of Krishna's journey was without incident, and he soon rode into his own city of Dwarka. It so happened that the people of his city were celebrating the festival of Raivataka, and everyone was out on the slopes of the hill of that same name, enjoying a lavish picnic. Krishna went straight to the encampment where his parents and family were staying. There he was greeted warmly and made comfortable, and he recounted all the dramatic events that had passed on since his departure. Krishna retold all the highlights of the war, from beginning to end, and listed all those heroes who had fallen in battle. When he finished, it was clear to everyone that he'd failed to mention one hero's name in particular, Abhimanyu. At this point, it is important to recall that while Abhimanyu was Arjun's son, his mother was Krishna's sister, making him Krishna's nephew. The boy also had strong ties to his mother's family because he was raised at Dwarka along with the five sons of Draupadi. The boy's mother, Subhadra, was there with the rest of the family, and she was the first to notice that he had left out the fate of her son. She said, Why have you not mentioned my son? Tell me exactly how he was killed. Supadra then collapsed in her sorrow, but Krishna did as he was asked and recounted the death of that great hero. Now drenched in sorrow, Abhimanyu's maternal kin went out and performed the rites for their fallen nephew. In the process, six million Brahmins were fed and clothed and given vast heaps of gold and herds of cattle. Back in Hastinapur, Abhimanyu's widow, Uttara, also mourned his death. She went many days unable to eat or sleep in her grief. This was a serious matter, because Uttara was still pregnant with the last surviving heir of the Pandavas. Finally, Vyasa needed to intervene. He paid a visit to Kunti and Uttara and said, Let this grief pass now. Remember that a mighty son shall be born by you. That boy shall rule the earth, just as Krishna has predicted. So don't be sad. As for Abhimanyu, he has gone to the regions of the gods, so do not be sorry for him. Meanwhile, the Pandavas had already set to work on preparing their sacrifice. The first requirement was cash, 
So the brothers sought Shiva's blessing and then set off to the mountains to retrieve Maruta's gold. Led by a pack of Brahmins and with an army of workmen and guards bringing up the rear, they marched into the mountains until they reached the place described by Vyasa. There, the priests took over and began a ceremony of propitiation to the god Shiva. When the offerings had been made, the workmen started digging up the field. They recovered so much treasure that 60,000 camels and 100,000 elephants were needed to haul it all away. There were too many mules and porters to count, all hauling as much gold as they could carry. While the gold was still being delivered to the capital, Krishna was once again summoned so he might attend the ceremony. It says that it was during this time, when Krishna was back at Hastinapur, that Arjun's grandson Parikshit, son of Uttara and Abhimanyu, was born, or rather, stillborn. All the people had been celebrating the birth of this precious heir, only to be plunged into grief at the news of his death. Krishna then hurried to the palace, where a tearful Kunti accosted him. She said, You are our refuge and our glory. Our dynasty depends on you. But now this child, son of your sister's son, has been slain by Ashvataman. Now remember your promise and revive him. His sister, Supadra, also joined in, begging and pleading for her grandson's life. Krishna heard them out politely and then said, I never utter an untruth, not even joking. Now let this child revive today. As soon as he said this, the dead infant began to move and come back to life. All the Kuru women joyfully praised Krishna while the Brahmins commenced chanting benedictions. As the news of this miracle spread, the entire city came out to praise him. Happily, Krishna presented the newborn prince with valuable gems and said, Since this son of Abhimanyu was born when his dynasty was nearly extinct, let him be named Parikshit. It appears that the Pandavas were still away mining gold when all this took place because the boy was already a month old when the Pandavas returned, bearing their newfound treasure. Krishna was still at the capital when they arrived, so the reunion was met with much celebration. Now was the time to do the horse sacrifice. As you might expect, Yudhishthira offered the seat of honor to Krishna, wanting him to preside over the ceremony, but Krishna declined, insisting that it was Yudhishthira's moment to shine. Old Vyasa took charge of stage managing the ritual. He ordained the proper setup, and then instructed the priest to release the horse. I guess now would be a good time to explain the Ashvamedha Yagya, or horse sacrifice. I'm using Wikipedia as my source, so you can take up any inaccuracies with them. It says that the sacrifice is described in the Yajurveda, and is also referred to in the Rigveda and the Brahmanas. In principle, the sacrifice is a way for a king to demonstrate his supremacy over his neighbors. A white stallion is let loose with a guard of 100 noble warriors. The horse is allowed to wander for a year, followed by this guard, and any foreign territory it enters must either try to expel the intruders or recognize the performer of the sacrifice as their superior. They would demonstrate their submission by attending the king's sacrifice at his capital, where constant rituals would be performed for the entire year that the horse is away. At the end of the year, the horse is led back to the capital where it is yoked to a golden chariot, bathed and anointed. The stallion is adorned with gold and jewels and then tied to a stake, along with a goat, a wild ox, and hundreds of other animals, both wild and domestic. Then the horse is slaughtered. The chief queen calls on her fellow queens to pity the horse. Then the queen must mimic copulation with the dead animal, staying the night with the beast. 
The other queens, meanwhile, are ritually uttering obscenities about her behavior. The following morning, the women use needles to indicate how the horse's body should be dissected. The horse is cut up and roasted, then offered to the deities. All the domestic animals, including a good number of cattle, are also killed and roasted, while the wild animals are set free. All the loot won during the year of fighting is then dispersed to the priests who attend to the ceremony. As for the Pandava's version of the ceremony, Vyasa assigned Arjun to the task of guarding the horse and its wanderings. Bhima and Sahadev were put in charge of defending the capital, and Nako was put in charge of managing the guests. The horse had already been set loose, so Arjun mounted his chariot and set off as the animal's protector and escort. He did not go alone. He was accompanied by a large crowd of Brahmins and lesser nobles. The horse's wanderings began in the northeast, and its arrival was not welcomed by the kings in that region. These kings were still unhappy about having lost so many relatives in the Great War, so when the horse entered their domain, they tried to drive it away. For example, the horse entered the kingdom of the Trigartas, whose king had been killed by the Pandavas at Kurukshetra. The king's three surviving sons all donned their armor and set off to fight the hated intruders. At first, Arjun fought them in a friendly manner, not intending to really harm them, but just to show them who was boss. But the Trigarta boys were mad, and they shot to kill. When Arjun was struck by their arrows a few too many times, he started to get angry. It's not safe to make Arjun angry, and the two elder brothers were soon killed. The youngest brother continued to fight, but Arjun did his best to spare the boy. But the boy persisted and even shot Arjun in the hand, making him drop his Gandava bow. Then the Pandava got angry. To protect the boy, his allies surrounded Arjun and showered arrows on him, but he just shot them out of the air and started picking off those kings. Recognizing their defeat, the kings then threw in the towel. Dropping their weapons, they said, We yield to you, we are your slaves, command us and we shall obey. Arjun accepted their surrender and ordered them to attend the sacrifice as honored guests. Next, Arjun entered the lands that formerly belonged to King Bhagadatta, the great elephant warrior who was killed during the war. Bhagadatta's son, Vajradatta, also tried to avenge his father's death, but again Arjun managed to defeat without killing his adversary. Soon enough, Vajradatta was on his way to Hastinapur to join in the ceremonies. The horse then entered the land of Sindh, where Jayadrata formerly ruled. A remnant of Kshatriyas who had either survived or avoided the war set out for revenge. The Sindhu princes seized the horse and even mounted it and used it to attack Arjun. Perhaps for dramatic effect, Arjun was beaten back rather severely. He was struck with arrows from all sides and even the gods and rishis became concerned for him. They began praying for his welfare. Then, when he was looking nearly defeated, Arjun made a comeback. Drawing on the benedictions of his divine sponsors, he turned the tables on them, and soon the Sindhus were on the defensive. As Yudhishthira had instructed him prior to leaving, Arjun tried to persuade the Sindhus to save their own lives and attend the sacrifice, but they were still upset over what had been done to Jayadrata. See episode 73. Finally, it was Jayadrata's widow, Dhritarashtra's daughter Dusala, who intervened. She boarded a chariot with her grandson, the Prince Sarata, and placed the boy under Arjun's protection. She explained that her own son, Jayadrata's son, had died of grief when he learned of his father's death. That left her grandson, this young boy, as the surviving heir. 
and now that Arjun held the young prince, the remaining nobles surrendered to his will, and the horse was set free to roam once again. The horse must have turned south by then, because its next stop was in the kingdom of Manipur. You may recall, way back during the forest exile, that Arjun wandered the country, siring sons when he could. One of his sons happened to be the heir to Manipur. So when the boy learned that his father had arrived, he rode out to greet him with a wagon load of tribute. Arjun did not like this one bit. He scolded the boy, saying, What kind of Kshatriya are you? You let a foreign force invade your kingdom, and all you think of doing is giving away your treasure? You're such a wuss, I can't believe it. Then the boy's stepmother, Ulupi, who was daughter of the snake king, appeared, and she said, Obey your father, fight him, and that will make him feel better. And so the prince, called Vabruvahan, donned his armor and rode out to fight his old man. I should clarify that Ulupi was Vabruvahan's stepmother in the sense that she was also married to Arjun, so she had that relation to the prince. Father and son then fought each other to a standstill, when both swooned from fatigue and injuries. The boy was brought around by his real mother, Chuchangada, and when he came to, he saw that his father still lay inert in the field of battle. When Arjun could not be revived, the boy began to blame himself for killing his own dad. He summoned his top priest to advise on how he might expiate the sin of patricide. Finally, he declared, If my father does not recover, I shall abstain from food and drink until I die, whence I shall surely sink into hell for my crime. But the snake queen, Alupi, had just the thing. She had a special gem that could be used to revive the dead. She gave the gem to Vabruvahan and said, It's all right, you couldn't really kill your father. Not even Indra and all the gods could do that. I set this whole thing up, so now put that gem on your father's chest and he will revive soon enough. The boy did as he was instructed, and Arjun revived as if waking up from sleep. Looking around, he saw Ulupi standing there and he asked, what is she doing here? The snake queen explained that she had come to take advantage of his desire to fight his own son. She said, I have done you a huge favor. You know, when the news got around that you had used Sikandin to kill Bhishma, the Vasus, Bhishma's spirit brothers, put a curse on you, that you too shall die at the hands of your own son. And so, I made sure I was around to revive you when that fatal moment arrived. I hope you're not too angry with me. Of course, Arjun was very grateful to have survived that curse and to have expiated the sin of killing an elder. He praised his son and invited everyone to head for Hastinapur and be his guests at the big Yagya. The horse was quite a tourist. From southern India, he headed up the east coast and then turned inland and traveled the whole breadth of India until he reached Krishna's homeland of Dvarka. Along the way, some kings fought while others cooperated, but all were subjugated and sent on their way to the capital. When the horse arrived at Dvarka, the young knights there all wanted to ride out and fight Arjun, but their king, Ugrasena, forbade them, and Arjun was welcomed as their ally and kinsman. Following that, for the last leg of its journey, the horse went north again, until it wandered into the land of Gandhara. Remember, Gandhara was a kingdom to the northwest of Hastinapur, and was the birthplace of Dhritarashtra's queen, Gandhari, and her brother, the odious gambler, Shakuni. Since Shakuni's death, his son had taken over, and he led a band of warriors to take the horse and kill the intruders. Arjun was quite happy to shoot them up, but he also remembered his brother's injunction to spare the king, so he tried to persuade the boy to give it up. When Shakuni's son refused, Arjun shot his helmet off and sent it flying all the way back to the palace. 
This unnerved the boy completely, and he fled the field, followed by the rest of his army in a full rout. Since the boy still had not surrendered, Arjun pursued, beheading the fleeing soldiers one by one until he reached their city, where they shut the gates and hid in the palace. Finally, the boy's mother, Shakuni's widow I presume, came out and made peace with the Pandava. Arjun scolded the boy for his uncouth behavior and then sent him off to Hastinapur. That's all for now. Next time, the sacrifice part of the Ashvamedha will take place, and we'll find out if Draupadi will actually lie down with the dead horse and pretend to copulate. Thanks for listening. <laughs>